Hi, everyone. My name is Dahlia Strum, and you're listening to the Decision Makers Podcast. We're back with season two with a new name, new feel, and all new guests. We're going to be chatting with industry professionals and entrepreneurs about insights, strategies, and behind-the-scenes approaches to support your initiatives. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, everybody. We are back with Decision Makers, and we are here featuring Ron J. Williams. Don't forget the J. <laughs> and we are recording in a WeWork studio, which is beautiful and amazing with a fantastic view. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to be up. <laughs> um, so we've known each other for close to 10 years now. Serial so. entrepreneur, key to my heart. Um, what were you doing back in 2009? Tell us a little bit about it. So 2009 was a pretty pivotal year, it turned out. So I had left Scholastic uh, at the end of 2008, and I was sort of my, my year to go into the desert. Um, and I had left specifically because I wanted to explore this really simple idea. Yes, we literally were in the desert. We met right. at South by Southwest. <laughs> we did. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, I think probably two years later, actually. Right? Is that – was it 11? Did we meet in 11? So it's not, maybe it's not quite 10 years. Wait, was it 11 or 09? Because I launched Cozy Wallet in 09. No, so 09, I definitely wasn't there because I hadn't even, and I launched Snap Goods, which is the first thing you know me yeah. for in 10. Oh. Yeah. Was it 11? I think so. Maybe. Because we didn't go down to 11. So I'd come out of Scholastic working on uh, what I called See What Wear. So it's this idea that um, if people could know or request what could be on a TV in public spaces like bars, then bars and restaurants could turn that into acquisition fodder, right? Imagine. Why you know, didn't I know that you were running that? Yeah, it was because it never went anywhere because I did the thing that I would never let a client do now, which is I built all the hardware, literally hardware, um, that would capture the signal for the remote control, transmit it to the set-top box. I was convinced that like every single major cable company was going to stop in their tracks and work with me until a great mentor and friend, Ty Mott Taylor, was like, I think he literally laughed when I told him what my go-to-market strategy was, and I hadn't talked to a single customer. I finally walked into a bar with this box, and I was like, you can just plug this thing right in, uh, and then people can know what's on your TV. And he was like, why would I want that? And I was like, so then they'll come in and buy stuff. And he was like, okay, cool. You want to install it? And I was like, yeah, it'll be like 500 bucks a month. And he laughed too. Oh. So perfect example of building without any benefit of kind of customer insight kind of on the ground. Uh, so at the time that I met you, I was kind of working through like, well, what's going on? The is, concept is, this... is super strong. You it's, should have so I would, I would do it again today. So apps weren't, if you remember, in 09. 08 was when I conceived of it, 07, 08. In 09, the iPhone was, I think, just about to yeah. launch or no, just I remember. Launch. I don't think that you were able to build apps back then. Couldn't build apps. I Smartphones think 11, 13, That's right? right. So I've since run. I did, I did sort of, I couldn't get out of my head as, as, you know, maybe discuss. My head is full of things. Sort of, I see the world through the lens of, like, possibility and things that need fixing. Um, today, I would sort of make it much more, uh, let's call it, on-demand crowdfunding meets um, you know, kind of mobile gaming. So if you could imagine if we want to watch the debates tomorrow night, we would rally around a place and effectively the bar would pre-sell us a special. They've got locked in, like, bought drinks. So it becomes a yield management tool for them. They don't have to do anything, right, except have this thing funnel through their POS. So I would build it very differently today and maybe maybe we'll build that business together. Because I actually, I think it's a very fun idea still. Um, I'd probably you call it, see like, my eyes lighting up yeah, right no, now. Yeah, no, it's a good, <laughs> because it is, you know, I think the, 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 the geekiness of it was, you don't go to a place just for the drinks menu or just for the bartender, just for the food or just for the wings. Or just, you go for a variety of reasons, but most of those reasons are not marketed or monetized by the establishment. Yeah. So from what's on the music to the type of people that are in the establishment, 
how do you sort of take these discrete facets of that experience and make them like expose them as discoverable, right? Yeah. Big idea. No, no, no. And I agree with you 100%. I'm actually surprised to this day that there really aren't resources like that. Um, I think I watched something the other day and I had to Google. What were, what were the sunglasses that X character was wearing in right. this TV show? And I don't think that it should be that difficult. I think it that it should almost be a little bit more on demand. And I think we're going we're gonna to get there, right? Like computer vision, machine vision is getting good enough. Still not quite there, but it's getting good enough that very soon, uh, you know, what I think Microsoft, what Bill Gates was trying to do 10 years ago, um, will bear out, right? Where, you know, a, a video is streaming past you and something's on screen. You don't have to pause at all. You'll get, if you subscribe to like, accessories or like, you know, fashion, like, like, uh, fashion, like you'll get alerts about like, this is what that person is wearing. Here's that look. Here's what a purchase it's coming. Um, but I think there's still a lot of room to experiment and sort of do some fun things. So when we met, I was just rolling off of that. I'd convinced a total stranger on Craigslist while I was thinking about what the hell to do next, uh, to rent me his motorcycle so I can impress my girlfriend at the time. And so uh, the, the live, it was, I told her I was getting out of bed. I was like, I'm, I'm going to go do some work, and then we'll catch up later. Let's go biking later, you know, sort of purposeful selection of words. Um, and I went out to Queens. Turned out it was another Ron, by the way. Um, and it was a Ron from rival high school. I went to Stuyvesant. This guy was from Brooklyn Tech. That's so funny. Uh, Something this... you wouldn't know, by the way, is that my brother's name is Ron. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Okay, so, we, so Ron, this is like we're in orbit. We're, yeah. Like we're in Dahlia orbit. All the Rons. Yeah. You have all, all the Rons. Rons. You have all the Rons. <laughs> um, and so I basically go out get this motorcycle from this guy. Weirdest thing in the world. I'm going to rent a motorcycle in Queens yeah. from this random guy. I think he's a native New Yorker. I'm a native New Yorker. He thinks that I'm going to club him in the head and take his bike. I think he's going to club me in the head and like, take the 800 <laughs> bucks I have in my pocket or whatever it was as collateral. Uh, nobody got clubbed in the head. I show up at my girlfriend's house. I told her to come downstairs. She comes down in sweaty yoga gear with her like rusty old bicycle, and I'm sitting outside on a hog looking like Black Fonzarelli, for those of you who remember Happy Days. Um, <laughs> and I think I think if I didn't have her already, like, you know, I kind of like, won her heart in that moment. Um, it, that went on to sort of be an amazing weekend where I spent like 200 bucks to rent this bike, got it back to him safely. And we had this amazing, unforgettable experience. Instead of me making a uh, impulse purchase to sort of have that weekend, I was able to spend 200 bucks. And I kind of came out of it like, holy crap, that was pretty cool. I would do this with like... A, Five more motorcycles just to figure out what kind of bike I want to buy next. And she was like, I would do that with all kinds of stuff. And I was like, Eureka, right? Like this is this is actually an interesting idea. So snap goods became the, the sort of that was the the codifying moment of try you should be you able buy. to try before you buy. You should yeah. be able to sort of rent things kind of as you need them from the community. And also yeah. really solidified for me a thesis that I'd held since Scholastic, which is the crowd is coming for all of us. Right. And from a business perspective, how can the crowd self-organize to do a better job? Yeah, and the funny part is you weren't too far off base, right? Like we're literally upstairs um, right before we got coffee. I don't know if you noticed, but there was the bin for Rent the Runway. So people are still trying before you buy. That's right. I think that it was just a little bit more of a market adoption, and it was a mindset shift back then that people didn't have that they do now. Well, I was also very – another important lesson I took away from Snap Goods that has made it into my kind of future work, today work, uh, is an obsession about – specific customer journeys, right? Specific customer needs, specific customer segment needs. So our big pitch was um, own less, do more. That was our tagline. Anybody can rent from anyone, anything. The problem is that that's not a a job that a person wakes up every day and sort of thinks to themselves, man, I wish I could rent something from someone. And we weren't paying attention to the data. The thing was called Snap Goods, and our best performing category was in photo and video. Mm -hmm. There were all these students, photo film school students, 
who were using our stuff because they could get something from somewhere in the West Village or East Village instead of going to some creepy cage way out in the boondocks. Right. And we weren't paying attention. That would have been a, a market, right? So the, That is remember, a market. That's a market, Yeah, right? Adorama actually has expanded tenfold Hugely. to just rent Hugely. any of the photography, videography uh, type of items that people might that's need exactly in that type right. of scenario. So, so interesting that that was a piece of data that you captured yep. after the fact. What made you reflect and kind of think through that actual aspect of the market? Like, how did that come to fruition if you didn't think about the data at the time? So we were watching the data, but I think, you know, as, as is often the case, you know, we, we, we raised a little bit of money. And I think, you know, knowing the distinction between uh, painting a big picture, like a really ambitious venture scale picture, being able to get on a stage at, you know, whether it be a tech crunch or New York tech meetup, um, and be able to pitch and get a crowd moving, rock a crowd, which, you know, I can do that. Um, knowing that that is one thing, that is one skill set, distilling that down into a cogent product roadmap, a cogent go-to-market that focuses on a specific segment, that's a different thing. Yeah. Now, it's a piece of the story, but it's a much more slender, narrow, more focused set of activities. So we were tracking the data, but we were so obsessed with it. My guidance, I was so obsessed with the big story. Maybe we should just start with these people. Oh, no, 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 no. It's really for everybody. And that's fallacy, right? Like that's a, the, the idea that I call it today the myth of the mass market. You never build an early stage startup for everyone. You build for a very specific someone and then 100 of their best friends and then 10,000 of their best friends. Yeah, but the problem is at that time, people wanted to see a larger market. Now we've learned, right? So now we're in this mindset of, okay, how do you? what is the starting point? Who's the That's market right. that you're starting to engage with? And how do you scale outwards? Um, and the funny part is we should know that information. We, think, we should think about Amazon and how they started with just, just books, books, right? That was such just a books, big and then, market and then, itself. And, and that's the thing is, you know, where Jeff Bezos, our, uh, our overlord, uh, was brilliant was – he always had a 50-year plan. He right. always saw this everywhere. He always saw the Williams family, um, and I married that girl, by the way, so it worked. I mean, two babies. So we're, we order every single day a box shows up from Amazon. My guess is he always had that in his mind. But the purposeful way that he applied a set of lenses, so let's start with what's small with a limited number of SKUs. Okay, let's go next to what's portable and from an inventory perspective can be stored and fulfilled, shipped, handled the same way boxes of electronics. And then we can get into the weird stuff that comes from all different parts of the world and some is it plastic, some they didn't start there. Right. And so that's well that was their the marketplace, right? right? Their marketplace was able to support that initiative so that they didn't have to stock merchandise, which right. now they do, and now it's causing a rift with the marketplace. So but, we'll see what happens. But even even the notion of how you fulfill and how you manage, you know, I'm I'm no logistics expert by any chance, uh, by any by any by any measure, but um, as we may talk about, there's a there's a thing that I'm working on, some learning about setting up supply chains. And what's always fascinating to me is even something as trivial as keeping a box that's, you know, one square foot bigger, that's cost. Right. Keeping things that are different shapes and sizes, they have to be stored differently, kept in inventory differently, that's cost. And so I think even in that way, Jeff Bezos was focused. Yeah. And so to the extent that at SnapGoods, I could have had a large vision. I did. Could have had great ambition. We did. I did. Um, but I still could have started with Let's crush it for this segment. That is my, this is my favorite definition of uh, market from um, uh, Crossing the Chasm, uh, Jeff Wood, is that it's a set of people who have a need that is roughly similar, that is self-referencing, 
it's such an important concept, right, in the kind of work that we do. A product is not a product without a market, right? These folks have to be folks that in some natural course of living their lives might come across each other socially or in the real world, online, to reinforce what you're doing because no business can afford to pay for every single customer. Right. Right. And so I could have started this. So that's really, that's really like the, maybe the number one thing that I took forward was, and the reason why I started Proof Labs was you have to have evidence that you both understand the pain point, but also who has it and where more people like that And how large are. the market is, totally. How large is the market. I agree. To start, your early adopter thesis. So fast forward a couple of years, and somehow you end up as the entrepreneur in residence at City, right? Ventures, City yeah. Ventures, yep. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How did that happen? So a uh, really awesome guy named Martin Zagorsik, um, sort of found myself across the table from him. He was an EIR at City Ventures, um, and I was working with a, a great startup, um, and we were attempting to do business with City Ventures. Um, uh, really city, didn't realize, didn't know what City Ventures D10X was, um, but came to learn about it. And the idea was this great fintech startup, I thought had some really great capabilities that city could leverage, maybe do a little biz dev, and maybe do more at some point was the kind of idea. Uh, and the course of doing lots of months of kind of work and massaging engagement with them, one day Martin was sitting across the table, we were having a beer, catching up kind of deal points. And his last deal point was, would you think about working here? Um, and I was pretty reluctant. You know, I sort of built a good thing. was having a great year. My Proof Labs consultancy uh, s- still doing well. And so I was like, I don't know that I want to work for somebody else and sort of have more constraints. Um, I don't know, man. Let's keep talking. I'm, that's not what I'm looking to do. Uh, and what I was blown away by was he kept throwing really smart people at me that all worked for or had worked for the D10X program. Uh, and as I thought more about it and talked to my wife about it and talked to kind of my own kind of inner counsel about it, um, you know, what emerged for me is, you know, my grand kind of designs in the world are really about building inclusivity and access into everything. And I've done, you know, make new and make creative and make innovative in a variety of settings. Publishing, startups, you know, mid-cap, kind of smaller companies. Um, I was a banker myself 20 years ago, right out of college, but I'd never really thought to apply these skills inside of a heavily regulated, in some cases, the most regulated bank in the world. And so, as I like to do, I mean, I've I, I throw around a challenge to myself. Like, can I can I be the guy who's not the smartest guy in the room uh, and help a company like Alluvium, right? It was was a, was a great portfolio company that I advised. Those guys are brilliant, machine learning guys. And I did, I did help them. I did help them reset their product roadmap. Um, Wait, so you're ever, if you're going to say something like that, you have to give us a little bit more oh. detail. So you helped them with their product roadmap. What was the pain point that they were dealing with? So, or? They, they, so really, really amazing company um, that actually wound up getting acquired. Um, so they were focused on applying machine learning to the industrial uh, setting. So if you imagine that at an oil refinery like a, a distillery, um, you know there might be, you know, fourteen different screens that a plant manager walking the floor is managing to, is like paying attention to. The pressure from there, the RPMs from that fan over there, like, you know, how how is the whole system doing the health of the system? Uh, and their really really big idea, <clears throat> excuse me, was that that could all be distilled down into a single kind of score called the stability score. That could then be decomposed, like clickable, broken into. We see some trends in real time, like real time unsupervised machine learning. We see trends emerging and we think we know what part of the system it is. And here are the three things that are currently impacting that score negatively in real time. Uh, So really, really brilliant idea. And the sort of opportunity there was that they had been engineering for a while and hadn't quite found that initial sort of fit in the market, right? They hadn't been able to sell in. 
And so we sort of came in and, and really happened upon some, some really interesting uh, findings. One of the most interesting ones was that most human beings, when presented with kind of very new tech around like AI, they first want you to show them, if you, if you throw a bunch of data at it, they want to see results that look like what they expect, step one, right? Historicals, like everybody kept saying, well, let's throw you some old data sets and see what it, see what it pulls up. They first want to see on those historical data sets insights that Dahlia as an expert expects to see. Then they want to be shown stuff that Dahlia might not have picked up on. I trust you. You got what I thought. Whoa, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. And then they're open to, well, tell me all about how I can run this thing better. And that pattern sort of led us to realize that the product didn't need to start with a full-scale implementation real-time throughout your other stuff. Give us your old data, and we're going to turn stand-up Everyday stand-up is going to be so much better informed for your engineering team because we're going to look back at your historical data from the day and tell you stuff that you didn't see and confirm the biases that you do have. And that kind of like the hoops they're making us jump through to get to pilots is actually the product. Right. Right. It just sounds like there's such valuable data. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm just thinking about like so many opportunities to use it. How do they filter it? That's that's something else What's that ma- I struggle with a little bit. Right, it's it massive. has to be massive. That's exactly right. So yeah, they say that most of the work that goes into like data science is is just the extracting, translating, and loading, like just cleaning mm-hmm. the data up, in form to even be operated on, right? Um, which I think is a huge opportunity. Um, and so, your question is a good one, which is like, well, so what data do you do you start with? Yeah. Part of Alluvium's promise was, well, you guys have these massive effectively toxic assets that are just sitting. It's all these data lakes that you're not doing anything with your capturing the data. They've already been capturing it. Just let us operate on it. So part of what was brilliant about what they built was the ability to look over just an, an unbelievable amount of data to extract and like distill down into a simple signal was part of their secret sauce. So here's the biggest issue being an entrepreneur. Sometimes you're so close to your product or even an entrepreneur, right? Yep. Sometimes you're so close. How do you take a step back and say, we're focusing on the wrong thing. Like, we're focusing on the wrong outcome. This is something that's really core and interesting here. How, how do you do that? So I think that is the, I mean, that, that's such a good question because I think that's, that's one of the hardest things to do. And I think it's, it's much easier in my capacity as a, a founder who can identify with the challenges that you're talking about, but also on your product or her product or his product, I have no horse in the race. So right. it's easier to look through a different Much lens. easier to come right. to somebody else's journey um, and sort of help them. Frankly, the, the good answers are usually already in the building, right? Just help them reframe and reprioritize what it is that they're building for. Oftentimes, by the way, it is just doing a better job of listening to and interpreting a customer signal. Right. right. So theoretically, the answer is bring an external set of eyes, right? That's right. Fresh eyes. Fresh eyes. Uh, you just need somebody to almost like ask you questions that you're not asking That's yourself, right. right? So so I wound up in that case to get to those insights. I wanted to talk to you, some of the folks that we were pitching on selling. And instead of just focusing on selling, I just wanted to hear about their days and what sucked and what was hard and what stacks they used, right? And just like effectively build an ethnography. Uh, and I wound up printing out the face of the guy that we were spending the most time with, uh, who was at like a, a light and power factory um, out of New York. Uh, and I plastered his face at everybody's desk. We're not building for a, a generic persona that's a composite of 50 people. This is a one-person show for right now. We got to deeply understand and intimately understand this guy's pain and like walk in his shoes. Um, and so that level of focus on 
really grounding in the reality of people's need, their pain, I think that that's the superpower. Like the ability to sort of really walk those shoes and reprioritize and be unafraid to uh, de-scope and like prioritize stuff out. Right. Um, that's, that's sort of where, to me, it starts. Um, and the second part is really going back to sort of how I wound up at City Ventures. What I took away from Alluvium was the, the real value of being rigorous in testing, right? And so, um, you know, as I sort of thought about how to do this work, it's not enough to run experiments, to do landing page tests. How do you start to establish um, methods uh, and approaches that you can repeat, right? I feel like in this work, we talk a lot about science-type metaphors, a running experiment, what are our findings, what are our learnings? Uh, but in good science, you can repeat the experiment and the outcomes, right, if it's really good. Um, and I want to see more of that in corporations. And so taking the experiences that I've had at startups and sort of picking hard spaces where I'm not sure if I'm like, you know, I get, as, I get imposter syndrome just like anybody else. Can I be the not smartest guy in the room and still help? I've not done that a few times. Coming into financial services was, can I do it even in an environment that is inherently far more um, stymied by whether it be regulatory pressure or kind of cultural um, kind of conditions, can I help? Can I make change? And, you know, it's been a really fun and interesting ride because the one thing that I know is all this equity, all this, all this access that I want to build, it has to at some point reconcile with our financial systems and the way that we, if we can't, we can help people in a lot of ways, if they don't have access to capital, if they don't have access to options. I think, so to answer your question, which wasn't really a question, it's just a theoretical comment, but to answer your question, the answer is always going to be yes, right? Because other people in the room are not going to have your experience and they're not going to have your right. network and your connections. So I think that all of that together rounds out to, yes, you can help. It just depends how much. And I think you've been around in this space for long enough, which is probably more than other people, where you can probably help a lot more than they probably could. So that that would be my assumption. And I really internalize what you were saying about like the customer profile. Um, when I host my classes, I typically try to get people out of the mindset of a target market because it's not tangible. You don't know who falls into That's that target right. market. You you don't connect to them. You don't have an emotional connection to them. And you need to know who your customer is. Right down to what are things that they would typically say? What are things that they would never say? What are wh Who are people that they would connect with? What are things that they would typically do in their day-to-day? -day, interest right. graft, etc. And I think that when you do that with a target market, it just it becomes too big. Does that connect with your students? Like how do you how do you teach them that? How do you make them feel that? We have to really sit down and break down what a customer persona is as opposed to a target market. And they struggle. They struggle a lot until they start thinking of somebody that they know that they can associate to that persona. And then it becomes a little bit more natural. So they they think about things that they would do for fun. They think about like places they would exercise. They would think about uh, like even right down to their eating habits. And yep. then it becomes much more tangible. So if they can do that and break down one person and all of a sudden they try to break out of that mindset of a target market. The reality is, and you said it in the beginning, people want to be able to reach everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So when I ask uh, my students what target market are they trying to connect with, they'll say 25 to 55. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it's, it's not realistic. It's not, it's not a realistic no. comment. You need to have a specific customer, and then the outside area gets a little bit gray, Right. Well, I mean, there's always an opportunity to do adjacencies, right? I think that's, I love that you said 
the you know the the typical and by the way it's not just students in your class like the typical no, no, no. Business my students person, are industry pro- professionals right, are, and entrepreneurs yeah they right? all fall into that and it's it's we're all guilty of if we're not careful if we don't have a great uh, a great teacher what we don't have uh, oftentimes is folks who kind of have their heads wrapped around the idea that unabashedly you can't serve everyone v1 you can't serve everyone this is not the olden days where you launch a, pro- a product once it's going to change it's you're going to iterate on the product but you're also going to iterate on the market and yeah. further tighten your your focus, right? Who's the right segment uh, for the next big spend? Um, and what I think people fail to realize is that increasingly, consumer, I believe, consumer expectations um, are such that they expect to be spoken to more specifically, not less. Right? We're all walking around expecting a fairly customized experience and interaction with the world. And so you think about, you know, even something as trivial as, um, you know, we, we were, the project that I was, I was like working on was looking at um, a peer-to-peer space and was using extremely commercial terms because it was in finance instead of what I felt to be the real terms between these people, which in this case would have been family members. Right. And just that switch, right, saying, well, you know, what language would they use? Right, like really good copy and really good product features, they emanate from the same place. It's right. deeply understanding how a person thinks about the problem in their own heads and their own words. Everybody doesn't use the same words. I agree. They're not all the same heads. So that is the opportunity is what you're doing for your students is equipping them with, I think, a bias towards in-market validation and in-market empathy. Um, and that is, and that's not a soft, squishy word. That's a very, that word is edges, right? Because it requires work. It requires yeah. work to get out of your own damn way. We don't use the word ep- empathy enough, and I think we should a little bit more because you need to be able to emotionally connect with yes. people and with the pain point. Speaking of which, yes. today is an exciting day for you. You yeah. launched something today. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so effectively we're, we're, we're going in a pre-sale on something called the Nudge. Um, and so the Nudge is a really simple, it's a hardware device actually, um, that you can put on any baby gate, any door or drawer where there's trouble. We're kind of, what I like to think of as like, the kind of uh, the kind of boo-boos that are hard to recover from um, on the other side of it. And so um, it's a really simple device that you put on, and it will mostly not bug you unless you leave that thing open for 10, 15, 30, or 60 seconds. Um, and it was one of those, like, I think I'm just going to do this for myself kind of deals where I realized that we had bought this baby gate um, in our house to baby-proof the stairs. Um, and like all well-intended parents were underslept, as we put all this money and time into like baby proofing and then consistently relieving this thing open by accident. And so the kind of the that's it moment came when um, we were sitting in a room and realized that our, our younger daughter wasn't in that room. And I was convinced that she was about to go careening headlong down the stairs. And so I jumped up and raced out of the living room. And as I jump up, she comes toddling around the corner and I almost send her six feet in the air because. I weigh her about 240 pounds. Like I was, right? Like, and I almost hurt her. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, why is this thing not just telling me when it's open? Right. And so I, uh, and I watched your journey. I watched yeah. you from the very early stages, just kind of like playing around with some of the hardware. That's right. Um, and it finally, it's come to fruition. I'm really excited for you. No, and I agree. I'm rad. surprised that these these gates, these baby gates that we spend so much money on, they don't have any type of a warning or a signal. Um, so now that you're in pre-launch, what is your marketing strategy around this? So we are, you know, we're and we're we're being a little, a little. Close to the vest, um, but what we believe is that there's not a brand in the market that exists that is uh, supportive and non-judgmental of parents as a top-level value, right? So, like, parenting is hard, and we get it, is, like, 
That's it. There's no, this isn't about being the perfect parent. Uh, this is about being what we all are, which is imperfect parents, right? Yep. And like, you love your kids still sometimes, that. right? Like you, you still forget stuff. You love your yep. kids. You still sometimes, um, I'm sure, accidentally like, you know, do stuff that results in boo-boos or, you know, kind of screw ups or whatever. Um, and so a large part of our, you know, kind of go to market is let's tell that story honestly and give honest reviews on gates and recalls. Uh, let's build and support a community of parents who are like unapologetically doing their best and sometimes, you know, kind of need tips from one another on like, how do you deal with this specific uh, scenario? So heavily relying on community building and content. Um, and we've got some some fun kind of digital uh, distribution channels that we're building uh, that I'll leave for another time. Um, right. A little closer to launch. But um, I think the, again, at the, at the sort of brand level, there's, there's so much in the market that I think speaks to like picture perfect mommy and daddy stuff. And then the other end, you have this kind of like incredibly hilarious kind of mommy Instagram, daddy Instagram. And I think there's not really a bridge in the middle. It just says like unapologetically, we all make mistakes and like we got you. Like there's yeah. too much on your plate. And for the things that we can take off, we don't judge. We just nudge. Right? Like we're here to first tackle this and then we'll look at like car seats because kids get left in car seats. Uh, we've got some other fun stuff coming for like in the house, but I want to build that brand. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to launch hardware. So you said that um, you keep using we. Who's part of your team for this? So Phil Morgan is a longtime friend, ironically, to, to go full circle, uh, was a big believer in snap goods out of the gate. Um, and he owns restaurants, and one of them is Building on Bond uh, in Brooklyn. Great place uh, that I've lovingly called a for-profit community center. Like it's a, kind of the center of downtown Brooklyn. And early days, he was like, want to make this a way station for snap goods? Like, would that help with distribution? Like, totally got the mission, like, to be able to pick up and drop off stuff there. Yeah. Uh, sort of on Which is funny that Amazon does that now, now right? Was, right? Yeah. Like, which is amazing. Um, so he got it, big believer in sharing economy and community in general. Uh, so became close friends um, over the years. And when I had the aha moment um, and decided to start building, I started researching, pinged him, because he is one of the hackiest, like, self-taught people I've ever met. Really impressive guy. Um, and then he was like, oh. I'm sending you a bunch of stuff that you should probably think about. And before I knew it, like within eight days of my texting him, we had prototype 00.1 kind of wow, in my house crazy. working. Um, and so I've been jamming since. And we've got a great team out of New Lab in Brooklyn um, that's doing principal engineering on on the device that's actually coming together. Cool. Uh, we're about to put in our, our first order. Um, and these things will actually be on sale next year. That's exciting. We're stoked. So... Here's the problem, right? Like you're saying next year. How do you how do you build the momentum and get people excited when they have to wait for a product a year out? So part of what we believe is that uh, again, there's so little content that's just unabashedly um, supporting parents without there's no this is the right way to do it. In fact, I've often said to parents, new parents, they're like, what do you think? What should I do? And I'm like, first off, take a breath. Second off, your kid is gonna be fine. Thirdly, if anybody gives you definitive information, cut them out of your life, unfriend them on Facebook. Parenting is fucking hard. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing and beautiful, but it's fucking hard. And we're all mostly, most of us, I think, um, almost without exception, doing the very best we can. And so we need a little more kind of understanding and permission and just, like being human's hard. Adulting is hard. And now you're also parenting. Um, and so a lot of the content and the sort of distribution and community kind of networks we're putting together, it's really all around um, creating a wonderful and informative kind of space for folks to come and get and give a little bit, even when there's not a product that they can put on 
their gates and their doors immediately. Um, and even after there is a product, and then a second product, and a third product, I really think there's kind of a community to be built here. So I love your entrepreneurial mindset, the energy, everything about it. <laughs> um, and entre- being an entrepreneur is hard too. What's yeah. one piece of advice that you could offer our listeners? So I would say acknowledge the fact that you will almost never get it right the first time. And if you know that, if you go in knowing that, um, have patience with yourself, right? So you, you know that it's not about hitting it out of the park. You know that there will be lulls. There will be, I've actually started for this chronicling my journey um, building, which I haven't actually shared broadly, but we're going to start publishing update on product, update on company, and update on just like what it feels like to be like a founder while I've got like a full-time job and advise here and do all this stuff and parent. Yeah. Um, have patience, right? Give yourself permission uh, to just be human and surround yourself with people who will push you positively, right? Um, that's my greatest advice is just be patient with yourself. So I agree with that. And I think about um, my biggest regret is uh, not not keeping Cozy Wallet running as long as I could have and should have and almost abandoning it because hindsight, I probably could have made it into something really big. How much time would you invest into your startup before saying this just isn't working anymore? So that's that would be the second piece of advice is yeah. if I were able to give it to you, it's you have to set um, – Goalposts, like you have to set goals for yourself, or else it is very easy because you nobody wants to metaphorically say that their baby is ugly. Um, nobody wants to say that it's over, and the problem is it's easy to slip into this kind of zombie walk of it's going pretty well. I had a good Tuesday, um, but it's been like five bad weeks. Right. And so what does that mean? So I think setting actual milestones. Uh, I'm a fan of you know uh, Bezos write down the article that you want to see in five years. Uh, but also more, much more like tactically. If I'm going to do a marketing test, how many folks does it need to acquire for it to be worth it if that were going to be our big investment? Um, how many units do I need to sell by February for me to know that there's a thing for us to keep going into? Or, oh, it's great, we got our money out, but like, I, I'm not the right guy or it's not the right time or it's not the right product. So I think setting milestones um, that you were you speak about to people in your circle, to your founders, to your loved ones, because the entrepreneurial journey is never actually by yourself, um, they can hold you to account. So I think setting those milestones is key. Yeah, I agree with that. Ron, you have been amazing. What's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Um, so I'm on all the socials, uh, Ron J. Dub on Twitter. Um, if you want to actually reach out, um, you can hit me up at uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, drop a note. I'm definitely not a fan of the cold, no context notes. So just give me a little context. I love to help. Um, and on Instagram, I'm also Ron J. Dub. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a quick review and feel free to hit me up on Instagram if you want to continue the conversation. I look forward to hearing from you guys.